You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Hello and welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Custer. This will be coming out uh, on or around March 8th, International Women's Day. So for this episode, we are zooming in on women in higher education and specifically women of color. And joining me today are the women of campus, Miranda Prin, our deputy editor and our content editor, Eliza Compton. Hello, Miranda and Eliza, welcome. Hi there, good to be here. Hi, Sarah. It's very nice to be here. I'm so pleased to have some co-hosts on the podcast. It feels less lonely for me here in our home studios where we sit. So I'm, I'm glad you guys are here and I'm, I'm really excited to chat about the interviews that you guys have both done. But first, before we get to that, you are very close to the content that we focus on TAG Campus, um, working with our authors and our contributors and editing those pieces and indeed commissioning those pieces. I wonder if there are any um, themes that have come out to you recently about uh, women in higher education or the intersectionality between gender and race um, that you guys that have stood out for you? Sure, shall I jump in? Um, Eliza, I'm, I'm sure you'll have plenty to add. One thing I've noticed that seems to be um, a recurring issue is this idea that women end up doing a disproportionate amount of non-promotable work, which inevitably can then hamper the work that they're actually going to be assessed on in terms of you know, promotion and uh, recruitment and so on. So I think that's one thing that um, we've got some resources addressing that and this whole sort of idea of, of saying no and, and the no club and how to sort of manage that, which is really interesting. And the other thing, which is universal across all workplaces, but parental and caring duties, again, falling disproportionately to women. I think it was very telling that during the pandemic, um, a lot of research has shown COVID had a disproportionate effect on female research output, which ultimately is going to have a knock-on effect on the career progression for those those women. So that's a hugely important thing that needs discussion and to be addressed. Yeah, I, I've been somewhat pleased to see um, groups of women kind of pushing back a little bit on that. And I've we've covered this in Times Higher Education News as well about the, what is it, the Club of No or the Society of No. There, there are groups of women who are really empowering each other to have the courage to say no to that stuff, to be able to identify what they should be saying no to. Um, and there was one, um, there was one group that even said that if someone, if someone says, oh, it's, it'll just be two hours a week or something like that, or a few hours a month, to always double the time that they predict that it will be um, <clears throat> in terms of the time that it will take for you to, to commit to some sort of committee or group or society. Eliza, how about you? Well, like Miranda, I was struck by the um, by the resource that we ran about non-promotable work. And I think the fact that that had four co-authors on it from two institutions, so from Carnegie Mellon and from the University of Pittsburgh, really emphasised for me the importance of networking um, and mentoring as well. And we had one article that was about gender-specific mentoring that um, that really hit home for me because I think if you can't see it, you can't be it. And we all need people around us to support our to support our work. And I think 
for women that's doubly important. Um, the other piece that I was really interested to read was um, was actually part of the submissions that we had through the THE Awards. So the Bystander Intervention Initiative from the University College Cork was one of our shortlisted projects. Um, and again, I think this is shows the importance of networks and working together. And this project was um, was one that was inspired by a project, I believe, in, in England, but it was teaching students to speak up when they see behaviour that is unacceptable on campus. This is around sexual harassment, which obviously is a big issue for women. But I think that principle could probably be applied generally. Um, and so I've found a lot of the work that we've done to be quite inspiring like that. I was just gonna say that's a really good example as well of where this um, kind of fight for gender equity and female representation across higher education and indeed other sectors, it, it doesn't and shouldn't be partisan because these mm. policies that need to be pursued should you know, ultimately benefit all staff. These are not, these are universally good kind of things to, to achieve. It's the tide that raises all boats. Yeah, exactly. Um, one thing that I've been quite surprised by <clears throat> is imposter syndrome and how um, women at all levels of higher education admit to um, having it. I was just reading today uh, in the pages of Times Higher Education, Nancy Rothwell, who's been the uh, vice chancellor of the University of Manchester for the past 14 or so years, um, is retiring. Um, and even now, she's still talking about how she, whenever she was first looking at having the job, um, she didn't think that she could do it, and she didn't think that she could do it very well, and she didn't think that she was up to the standard of her predecessor, who was a man, um, to actually do it and, and do a good job at it. And I've um, spoken to Joy Johnson at Simon Fraser University, who said that her advice that she would give to her younger self would be to just do it and do the job and not worry about um, what other people would think. And even Louise Richardson, the former vice chancellor of Oxford University, um, said that um, she faced huge amounts of doubt and uncertainty and even obviously uh, discrimination for being a woman within higher education. So it is something that it's not just the early career researchers who are dealing with this. This goes right all the way up to the top for women in higher education. I imagine it gets worse. One of the um statistics that, that I heard in the recording of, of the interview with um, Dita Zaghi was that only 28% of the science and engineering workforce in the US is women. And she mentioned that this just gets worse as you get further up the hierarchy. So um, whilst it's somewhat dispiriting to, to hear that imposter syndrome affects even those who have reached the highest rungs of their career, in some ways it's, it's not that surprising. And Eliza, perhaps there is a solution sitting in um, the interview that you did uh, about quotas and maybe very specific hiring practices to make sure that that pipeline of women um, into STEM fields, but then also into research positions uh, is filled. But let's wait before we get into that. Uh, Miranda, who did you talk to? Tell us, tell us who we're going to hear from first. I spoke to Henrika McCoy, who is the Ruby Lee Peaster Centennial Fellow in Services to Children and Families and Associate Professor at the Steve Hicks School of Social Work at the University of Texas in Austin. 
Um, we talked a lot about how being a black woman has affected her academic journey and a few things that really stood out. One was the stereotypes and biases that she has had to repeatedly fight through her career, like assumptions about her professional rank, her background, her even her expertise being undervalued at points. And then the other thing which actually links to what we were just talking about in certain ways is um, was the importance of representation in really practical terms. Henrika pointed out that obviously it's more difficult for supervisors or senior ranks to understand and shape policies to support staff if they have no insight or understanding into the unique challenges those staff may be facing. So, you know, that is something that needs addressing and it's made more acute by intersectional challenges. Wonderful, let's now hear from Henrika McCoy. Hi, Henrika. Great to have you on the podcast today. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I feel very honoured to be a part of this group. Oh, it's wonderful to have you. And you're speaking to me from Austin, Texas, where you've been for, what, about six months now? Uh, I started here July 1 of last year, and I've physically been here since around October. Wonderful. On that note, can you give us a quick overview of your academic career? Sure. I actually started in academia... Um, unbelievable to me, about 22 years ago, I had been a clinician first. I'm a social worker by training. And I left being a direct service practitioner and began as a director of admissions and in a clinical faculty position at Jane Addams College of Social Work at University of Illinois, Chicago. And I really took that position to see if I really thought academia was a place I wanted to spend the rest of my career and decided that it was. So I stayed there a little bit over four years and went back and got a PhD in social work from the George Warren Brown School of Social Work at Washington University in St. Louis and finished there and went on for two years at Boston College at the Graduate School of Social Work, then returned back to Jane Addams College of Social Work for 12 years and remained there up until last year where I began here at the Steve Hicks School of Social Work at University of Texas at Austin. And I was really drawn to this position. I had been doing administration the past couple of years as an associate dean but was fortunate to have the opportunity to come to University of Texas at Austin in an endowed position as the Ruby Lee Peaster Centennial Fellow in Services to Children and Families. And that was a great honor. I'm I'm following in the footsteps of two um, well-renowned faculty members, um, Ruth McCroy and Rowena Fong. And it was really a chance to get back to doing the type of research that I really got into uh, academia to be able to do. So I've been here since July and and getting my feet back into really devoting my career to teaching research and service. Yeah, that must be so rewarding, being able to get back to that core mission that led you into academia to begin with, and I'm sure it's richly deserved. You mentioned that, you know, the fact that you've moved from practice into academia. I'm interested to know what was it that attracted you to the academic life at the very start and still does? Sure. You know, it was interesting. I have always, my focus in in practice has always been as a clinician working with families and children and youth and adolescents who had, were experiencing some mental health challenges for um, children, youth and adolescents, but um, often throughout that they were families who had contact with the legal system. And what I experienced was that often those families were African-American and often did not have appropriate access or understanding of what that the legal system was. And so I went back and got a 
a master's degree in jurisprudence and child and family law because I really wanted to be a better social worker. But what I found in that journey was that so much of the research that was being produced about that particular population didn't reflect what I saw as a clinician and what I really experienced as a Black woman. And so I decided one way that I could contribute was to go back and get a PhD and contribute uh, on the research side to those who were clinicians to really provide a different perspective that I felt might be a little bit better informed about the clients that people were seeing and to give them perhaps a different perspective, but then also to support clinicians I knew who were like me, who felt like the research that was being produced really did not reflect what they were seeing in their own offices. So my goal was to take my own clinical perspective and really change the face of research as best as I could and have hopefully a better impact on families that were really struggling. Yeah, well, an incredibly worthy reason to do it. Arguably, we need more people on that similar journey and building that research body to really provide a proper, holistic, informed approach. We are actually here to talk about women in higher education and the unique challenges and strengths that women bring to the sector. You've referenced being a Black woman in the sector, and I'm interested to know, how do you think that has affected your career journey in higher education? I think it's been a positive um, and a negative. I'm, you know, I hope to think more positive. I think on the positive side, certainly getting into a doctor program, I was able to get full funding for my program. And it's because the fellowship that I received was specifically for um, persons of color, first generation, which I'm not. But that was certainly helpful in terms of being able to be someone who left the workforce after many years and needed to go back to school and want to not take on significant debt. And so that was accessible to me, which certainly was not for many students. Um, there were other st funding streams, but that for me was, because that was carve-out funding, certainly very helpful because I still had responsibilities beyond myself. But I think, you know, unfortunately there are more negatives that probably immediately come to mind. You know, I've often had to fight stereotypes by professors when I was a student, by colleagues, um, by students that I've taught, you know, things that might sound minor, but really aren't if you look at the larger scope. You know, I've had students who've been unwilling and even colleagues to acknowledge my title of doctor, which would be okay if that didn't happen with other colleagues, but I've literally been in the room where colleagues who've had less experience or lower academic rank, um, who were not Black, who were called doctor, whomever, and I was referred to by my first name, or students who literally just refused to, despite being informed that that's my preference for how to be addressed, and I've had to correct them. I had my work and expertise dismissed because the assumption was, oh, you're Black, you're a woman, of course you know that, making you know tremendous assumptions about my own background, my lifestyle, and assuming that I just know this because, as opposed to the years of practice experience and academic um, study that have gone into learning that information. And I think you know more recently, as I've begun to publish things that might feel for some people um, confrontational, which is not the goal, it's informative, I've increasingly received, I think, some harassing emails because people are just dis people disagree with work or it challenges them to think in ways that they don't want to think or haven't thought of. So although there's a lot of positives, I think, unfortunately, the things that immediately come to mind are the negative and continuing to do this, because I think despite that, there's still a place and a lot that I have to contribute as a black woman because I'm so underrepresented in the academy. Yeah, woefully so in, in both the US and I have to say the UK, the, the figures for black academics of both genders are woefully low. 
from what you said there, I mean, you've described a number of what some people would label microaggressions, some of them less micro, but essentially assumptions about you. Would you say due to these kind of biases that you've come up against, you do feel that you've had to sort of battle harder than a white academic would have done? You know, I think so. I, you know, I think that, you know, the assumption is always that if you're black, that automatically you're poor, you don't have um, a father involved, you, um, all of your relatives are incarcerated, et cetera, et cetera. And that's certainly not my experience or upbringing. I grew up in a two-parent household until my father passed away and not from something violent, but from a health issue. I had private education my entire life. I had a parent with a master's degree who worked. Um, I don't have any family members who are incarcerated. I worked very hard. I was a, a bright student who went to college at 16, not because of some program, but because I was smart enough to get there. I have been very successful in my career. I have multiple graduate degrees. But the assumption automatically from students and also from colleagues is that you got in because of some program or some gateway was open just to let you in. And then to top it off, because I study particularly issues that impact Black men and young Black men and young Black adolescents, that this must all come from my personal experience as opposed to really understanding and taking the time to investigate not only my interests, but how other people have approached that topic. So... I've had to battle that consistently. I think the other side of that is the assumption that you are the expert of all things related to being Black or being a Black woman, and then having to point out that there is actually heterogeneity within the group and that I cannot possibly represent every single person, and that although I may represent a small portion, that it's important to not assume my experience or my opinions represent everyone. So I think there's a constant battle on one side or the other. It just depends on the environment that you're in. Yeah, and that is a common theme, I have to say, among Black academics who've written for us, for instance, on THC campus, around this challenge they come up against, that they are expected often to speak on behalf of all Black people, whether in higher education or even beyond. But then equally, there is a balance to be struck, because clearly you don't want to disenfranchise BAME academics from discussions around what needs to be done to improve representation. You've mentioned the fact there is obviously within any group, however, like whatever characteristic group one is referring to, whether it be black academics or women or LGBTQ academics, any of these groups hold within them huge diversity. I mean, do you think there should be more focus on the intersectional nature of, for instance, race and gender when trying to actually improve equity, diversity and inclusion policies? I think absolutely. You know, it's so interesting. I often, because of my experiences, always identify race as being the thing that drives how I experience life first, but gender is certainly in there. It doesn't mean it's gone away. And that's because we do have sexism in our society. And so, you know, race and gender intersect in that there is still, if you think about, if you take away the Black part, there is still sexism that exists between men and women um, in our greater society. And that doesn't just dissipate because I am a Black woman. Um, it doesn't just dissipate because I am Black. So when you put those two things together, there becomes this additional impact that is had. And, you know, years ago, when I first got into the field of social work, there was this real focus on being colorblind. And 
we've gone away from that. And now some people are trying to go back to that, which is a horrible idea. But there's also kind of this expectation of gender neutrality and gender blind as well, which is not true. Because within our society, not only will we have someone who sees you based on your race, but they see you based on your gender. And so there's this paternalism, there's mansplaining, there's all this stuff that still happens that would probably also happen were I not Black. So when you add that into perhaps prejudicial attitudes or, or racism that's based on having power into that, what you're then left with is someone who's impacted by having multiple, multiple perspectives that really are designed to demean and disempower someone. And so if you don't have intersectionality, there's a guarantee that you're going to miss one of those things that ultimately creates the experience that someone is having. Yeah, of course. I've read repeated claims that female academics tend to take on too much in inverted commas, non-promotable work within universities. And inevitably this hampers the time spent on teaching or research or puts a lot of pressure on it and therefore can impact their career progression. What are your thoughts on this? Have you found this has affected you at all? I think it does. You know, it's so interesting because I think it's um, it's an experience that happens because of external pressure, but also because of an internal drive that got many of us into the positions that we're in. So externally, when you think about your academic environment, both inside and out, be it professional organizations that you're involved in or within your university, because you are generally underrepresented, you're often called to be the person to be on this committee because they want someone and there's no one to fill that role. The frustrating part for the individual, though, is you are aware of that and you want the position to be represented. And so despite the fact you understand how that may negatively impact your own personal goals, we're often drawn because we do have such a greater sense of wanting to contribute to change a narrative or change an experience that we're often drawn into doing some of that work. Unfortunately, what happens is you're drawn into doing that work in many aspects of your life. And those don't generally communicate with each other. And because other individuals, and this is where intersectionality comes about, when you're talking about someone who's who's female, who's not um, Black or perhaps another um, ethnic or racial minority, they may not experience that in the same way because there's more women to share the burden with. They don't recognize that your burden may be because of race, not just gender. When you take away um, the gender part of it and it's race, someone may look and say, well, you know, all the Black people are called, but they fail to see how perhaps depending on your area, your field, there's so few Black women that you're still called to do that work, even if Black men aren't. So you take on this non-promotable work, like being on committees, like um, it could be mentoring, et cetera, because there's the external pressure and then your internal real desire to contribute and make change and make sure that that voice is heard because you know that if it's not you, there might not be anyone else. Or to also make sure that someone is represented so that those who are coming behind you have someone to look up to and say, oh, if I hadn't seen you do this, I wouldn't have thought it. I mean, the number of students I've had who are young, Black, and female, particularly who say to me, I've never had a Black professor, particularly a Black female professor, happens every single time that I'm at a, a different university. I've been in four universities in a professional sense, and I've always had a student say that to me. So that creates another pressure to want to take on that role, even if it doesn't help you personally. And that's a constant battle. Yeah, I can see that. And that's telling what you say that, that every university you've worked at that's what students have, have said what would your advice be on this one because I 
can see it is really tricky. Like some people would say, well, just say no, but you obviously feel a huge burden and responsibility on this. So how do you manage it? Or what would your advice be to others? Well, I think you have to decide which no to say no to. Um, I think what happens that early on in our career, we say yes to everything and we quickly learn how that's not something you can sustain. I think at the end of your, I'm not at the end of my career, I'm, I'm what I'm called mid-career, you figure out what places make the most impact. I think you have to decide, you have to say no to something. You have to decide though, which thing will give you also personal fulfillment. Because I think we often spend so much time wanting to fulfill other people's needs, we lose track of our own. So you have to decide which yes is not only going to be successful for the person who you're trying to do the work for, but give you something that you can also build on and contribute to those around you and to those that you're trying to provide an example for. And if, if there's a challenge understanding that, talking to someone who's had a similar path about how they made that choice and what will pay off in the end and, and what is personal and what's professional and what is a combination. But if you try to figure it out on your own, the likelihood is you'll spend so much time doing that kind of work that your long-term goals, whatever that those are, might not be met. Yeah, and arguably no one long-term benefits from that, really, if you wear yourself out on things that in the end aren't going to fulfill you and aren't going to lead to your success. Now, I know you're not a parent yourself, but I am interested to hear from your standpoint what your opinion on current university policies relating to staff with children or caring responsibilities are um, what you feel sort of impact of said policies is? Well, I think, you know, probably in every industry, including academia, there is still work that needs to be done in this area. I don't think that there's a true understanding of the impact of being a parent. I think this impact can be different sometimes for people of color, because oftentimes, um, and when I say people of color, I should also include their families who um, are immigrants or families who um, really are caring for extended family and this, that this isn't always done, that the impact can be greater than just the primary people living in your home or the assumption that the support system that you have is there, or the assumption that you have the financial resources to balance trying to care for children or parents or whomever or a partner, whomever that you have. And so there's flexibility and that's often done depending on your immediate supervisor. So this is where the challenging part comes in. If your immediate supervisor does not at all understand what it's like to be a woman and particularly a woman of color, this can be real, it's a real disadvantage. I think the, the flip side of that is what often happens is if you're not a parent, then there's an assumption too that you then don't have other responsibilities. And so then there's an increased burden for those individuals to take on additional responsibilities as well without considering the other caring responsibilities that might exist. Because often as we know in, with families of immigrants, families of people of color, it's a multi-generational experience. And we generally live in a society that looks at kind of a core family of two parents, two children, or two parents, three children. And most often families are non-traditional increasingly and they don't reflect that. And I don't think that current policies have continued to understand and be responsive to those particular needs. And so the result is that often people who are women and women of color find themselves not being able to be in a position of being as successful as they could be if there was support available to them. 
you mentioned that this is quite you've mentioned this rests quite heavily on the individual manager supervisor who would be responsible for kind of deciding the work patterns and so on for the parent i bring that up because it kind of highlights your point that if that's an individual who really isn't so capable of empathizing or having a kind of insight into what the academic with children or other caring responsibilities might be going through that's going to add to the challenge of shaping policies well and then it brings us right back to that issue of representation because if there's no one in the system ahead of you that represents whether it be your race or your gender and so on that's going to make the thing a whole load trickier i want to kind of move to a more positive perspective which is where do you think there has been marked progress in um, the u.s higher education sector with regard to gender equality and more specifically for women of color working in academia you know, I think that there are periodic attempts and successes at trying to have increased representation in some fields. I think that's not uniform. And I think what often happens is there tends to be more um, stability as opposed to increased representation, but there is an appearance of increased representation. And when I, I, I hesitate to say that that's progress because what happens is you may have increased the, the size of your faculty as a whole so when you increase the number of people of color, the percentages don't change. It just looks like it does. I think also, you know, there is likely progress when, depending on your field and seeing access to perhaps funding opportunities, um, et cetera. But the issue that comes up there is that, you know, research consistently shows that because it's often perceived that we do research about things that we already know about, people don't value that research in the same way. So you're often less likely to get funding in that area because no one sees that as a need for extension or what you care about, no one else does. I, I teach a research class. I talked about this last night in class, how often the case is that the areas that I do research about doesn't feel important to everyone else. So even though you may see increased opportunities that appear to be something that's accessible, actually getting the funding doesn't always work out that way. So there's progress perhaps in an appearance of opportunities or an appearance of representation. But when you look at what the outcome actually is, there often is very little change. So would you say there's quite a lot of sort of tick box, surface level nods to trying to improve equity, diversity and inclusion, but actually the, the reality in terms of tangible impact is not really there yet? Absolutely. I think that, you know, it's been great to see, for instance, so much movement towards having, you know, DEI or JEDI or whatever it is that whatever term we want to use for diversity, equity, inclusion and justice, whatever we want to call it. But it's generally a checkbox. It doesn't really have people think about what actually happens. And the burden is often placed on the people who are trying to get access. So a common example of this is increasingly now when people are trying to apply for jobs, they want you to write a diversity statement. Well, how about the age, how about the, the academic institution talk about what their diversity plan is? It shouldn't be the burden on the person who's applying to demonstrate how they represent diversity. You're likely looking to them because you think they represent diversity. How about you as the institution demonstrate what you are doing to try to improve diversity, equity, justice, inclusion in your institution? 
So there's a, this great appearance, but not a real commitment. But when you do that by asking someone, you can check the box saying we care about it because we asked about it and we hired someone who said they care about it. But there is not movement from the institution often, substantial movement, significant movement or honest movement to make change other than hiring someone that they think will reflect that they are interested in change. Yeah, I mean, you've written some really sort of powerful pieces for the THU campus on this issue of institutional embedded structures of, of racism, really, that are not being addressed at their core. I know you said that you, since speaking up on this, have received a certain amount of affiliation and abuse. And I'm incredibly sorry to hear that. That's um, horrible thing to have to deal with but do you feel to a certain extent although it should not fall to you to be speaking up on this that you that you do need to sure I think I have to I mean I, I feel fortunate to be in the position to be able to I mean no one wants to say something and be attacked personally because of their opinions that's something I would never do I think we have to live in a world with discourse and disagreement Obviously, I wish everyone would agree with me, but I know that that's not how the world works and that's not how we should want it to work. We should want to always be challenged to consider a different perspective so that we can continue to grow. But I think that, you know, oftentimes the majority of people don't have access to say anything. And I've certainly spent the majority of my life not having access to say anything to a large audience. So I think when you get the opportunity, you have to take advantage of it. Because not only will it hopefully change the outcomes for you, but ideally it will change the outcomes for people behind you who are wanting to also make change. But even people who just want to be able to contribute in a way and not feel that if they do so, they are putting themselves or their career or their families or whomever at risk. And I think it's unfortunate that that's the experience. So, you know, here I am with the chance to be able to take on some of that burden and use the support system that I have to navigate that. But I think if we get to the place and we don't attempt to contribute to the conversation, then we only really help to sustain the problem. Yeah. The other thing I would add in the pieces that you have contributed, um, certainly for our website, is that they are hugely instructive and that is also of huge value. Moving on to, to younger Black female academics coming into the system, if you we're talking to a Black woman who's an ECR just starting out on their academic journey right now. What would be your top line advice to them to help them sort of succeed and perhaps overcome some of the inevitable hurdles that they may face? I think it was probably three top things. I'd say to them, first, find yourself a genuine support system, both in academia and not in academia. You know, you need one in academia because it's such a uh, area where people, unless they're in it, just really don't understand. I was having a conversation with a friend um, a few days ago from high school who reached out and said, oh, you know, what are you doing? I mentioned what I did and um, I mentioned I'm teaching one class. And so the response was, oh, what do you do with your downtime? <laughs> and then I went on the list of 50 things that I do when I'm not teaching. And they, you know, because downtime doesn't really exist. So you need someone in academia to, who can be part of your support system to recognize what you actually do, because there's such a, a lack of understanding about what our jobs really are. But then you also need a support system who are not in academia, who can take you away from the overarching pressures, particularly if you're early, early career or even mid-career, if you're moving towards promotion, who can help give you a break away, because this can be such an all 
encompassing experience that can actually be pretty unhealthy and both psychologically, physically, emotionally. So you also need a support system to move you away from that so that you take a break. I think second, I'd want people to reconsider the idea of an imposter syndrome. I think that's such a fallacy that we allow ourselves to so easily buy into. And I say to people that an imposter syndrome is what people want to tell you so that you feel unworthy, but that if you were unworthy, you wouldn't be here. And to remember what got you here and remember why you decided to pursue this line of work. So don't buy into, I hear people say all the time, oh, I suffer from imposter syndrome. No, you suffer from someone telling you that you don't believe something and you're buying into that. So to, in, to get rid of that, not fall into that belief system. And I think the last thing is to don't be lulled into gaslighting, which happens all the time when you know exactly what's happening in your environment, you see it, and then people tell you that's not true. When you know you saw something that reflected racism, or you know you saw something that reflected sexism, and everyone around you was telling you it wasn't, and you begin to question, well, maybe I didn't. Don't fall into that. You know exactly what you saw and what you experienced, and you are accurate, and you have a right, if you feel comfortable, to confront people about that. And I think that's very hard to do just in general in our society, but it's really hard to do if you're early career because your promotion, your being able to be feel safe in your environment is so dependent on your colleagues. And so there's always a hesitancy to confront people, but if you don't at some level, at some point, the emotional toll on you will be so extraordinary that you may find that you leave this field or leave your area because of that. And you should not take on the emotional burden of someone else. Yeah, that's great advice to believe in yourself. Do trust your that that you know what you're talking about in various different situations. I think that that's great advice for life. <laughs> and then another top three I'd, I'd like from you is what you think really needs to change within the higher education system to improve equity across gender divides, divides of race uh, in order of importance or urgency. Well, you know, I think first is a clear level of representation. You know, I um, I am always amazed when I look around and the numbers stay the same. And, you know, I think people assume that when you hire one Black person or one Asian person, whatever you're hiring, they're all this, everyone's the same. And that's not true. Numbers do matter, um, but also so do perspectives. So to make sure that when you are thinking about representation, what does that mean? And that we increase that. I think making sure that we try to get rid of and eliminate unfair higher expectations for those individuals. You know, the expectations of being on increased committees, of being mentors, of being the spokesperson, of being able to be super person and still do all the other things that you're expected to do. We, we have to get rid of that because if we don't, what we're continuing to do is burden people to never be able to be successful and then continuing to blame them when the environment is not designed to really create success. And then I think the failure to compensate people then for that extra burden, you know, the hours that you put in are often significantly more and not that you're putting them in for the work that you want to do. You're putting it in for the work that is being given to you or expected of you, but there's no compensation for that. And I do mean financial compensation. I think that, you know, it can be a real disheartening experience to look around and realize that someone is who you know is working significantly less, is making significantly more and doesn't have the same expectations. So we have to have more people. We have to have realistic expectations and we have to compensate them accordingly. And when you hire people because they quote unquote have the expertise in DEI or whatever else, that's not free. You have that expertise because you lived and survived something. 
but somehow that's not compensable. And we need to really deal with that. That somehow we think it should be okay that people give of that experience and are not compensated accordingly. It's a very good point. And it comes very, it draws parallels with this whole thing of non-promotable work, but it's really one step further. This is kind of non-rewarded work. Right. And it's work. It's it's using, as you say, it's using your expertise and applying it to something for the benefit of others or an organisation. Ending on a personal note, what are you most proud of in your own academic career? I think, you know, this might sound cheesy, but I think having opportunities like this, you know, certainly when I started in this work, I hadn't really envisioned kind of what my career would look like um, at this point, many years later, and beyond kind of hopefully doing research that will contribute and change outcomes. But I certainly feel fortunate and honored that I have the chance to engage in, in venues like this to be able to talk about my experiences and ideas, not just nationally, but internationally, so that hopefully someone else will be able to hear my experiences and, and learn from them and build on them and make change for someone else. So I, I guess it's my career at this point in a, a nutshell, because that's given me a chance to do things like this, to contribute op-eds and to write articles and to be on podcasts and to be a part of interviews that reach other people so that they feel like they have support, encouragement, and a model to move forward. I think if, if nothing else, if, if one person hears or reads something that I've done and it makes them stick it out for the next day, I think that that's a really positive thing. Yeah. And you know what? It will keep that front and center, which I'm sure you do. <laughs> um, Henrika, it's been an absolute delight talking to you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I thought Emrica's advice there was really useful, both on prioritising how you focus your energies, but also her her advice that the young academics in particular, but arguably any academic, that you should back yourself and really trust that you do know what you're talking about. And obviously she was speaking in speci specifically about black women in academia, but really that's great advice for anyone in any walk of life to trust that you know what you're talking about and that you're in that role for a reason. Um, and it kind of links back to what we were saying earlier about imposter syndrome being, being a widespread mm. problem. Mm. Yeah, and uh, I'm glad that you asked her about um, the unpaid labor that happens a lot for females working in higher education, but especially she talked about the intersectionality of that, about being a black woman on committees. And it was really interesting how she said it was less obvious because of that intersectionality. It was less obvious of kind of why that burden was there. Was it because she was a black woman or was it because she was just a woman? And because a lot of the people who are on those committees are already doing that as unpaid labor. It was just less obvious to see what it was. But I also liked how she talked about, she called it a constant battle um, between the internal and external um, pressure to be a part of those committees because on one hand, she wants to have visibility in those spaces as a minority, as a black woman in higher education. She feels a real obligation to, to present her view and represent a specific group on those in those spaces but then at the same time obviously it's taking away her time to do scholarship and and focus on the work that will eventually progress her career yeah absolutely i think 
Henrika is admirable because she has decided to step up and speak out on issues that she thinks are important. And as she herself said in the interview, she had many years where she did not have a platform from which to speak on these things. And therefore she obviously feels a huge sense of responsibility, but you're right, that creates tension because not all of that is necessarily gonna help her in a much more practical sense. And yet it, it is expending energy. And, you know, in some cases for her has, has actually led to, you know, people reacting quite angrily or in, in some, some fairly negative ways that she also has to deal with, which is emotionally tiring as well. I also like how um, she talked about um, children and caretaking, because this is also another thing that's usually synonymous with women in higher education, whether or not it's accurate. Um, but it was a quite nuanced take on that that I haven't really heard before. Um, we've talked about caretaking responsibilities a lot and how that falls on women. However, people just assume that because you don't have children that you have all this time to take on extra responsibilities and that you aren't actually a caretaker. And this is where that intersectionality comes in is again, is that a lot of times in black communities, certainly in other racial minorities communities, there are there is that intergenerational caring um, for people within the family or in the community and that the policies don't necessarily facilitate the flexibility to do that caring that it does for parents. Yeah, of course. And that, again, links to what we were saying earlier, that policies designed, potentially designed primarily to help, in, you know, women who are mothers and fit that kind of stereotype they will actually also they or they should also be designed to help anyone of any gender with caring responsibilities these are policies that really should be creating flexibility and support so that people can live their lives be it relating to their family or you know people are caring for or otherwise one thing actually that she did say that really did stand out for me was she said numbers matter which um there was that sense of, of a sufficient number of, of people speaking out and um, making their, I guess, needs and situations understood. And just, it was just something that kind of tied the two things to me, for me together um, in speaking to DR about AI, then numbers obviously matter there uh, as well. Um, and Henrika also mentioned the fact that change happens at an uneven rate. Um, which really resonated for me as well. I think there's a sense that progress needs to be upward and constant, and we shouldn't be. We should therefore not be um, surprised when they don't. Um, when the when the movement is a bit stop and start, um, it's no less progress. Eliza, tell us a little bit about who you spoke with. Who's our next interviewee? Well, our next interviewee is Dita Zaugi. Um, who is based in Sydney. She's a professor of software engineering, so in the STEM field, um, and is currently a senior principal research scientist at Data61, which is the data and digital specialist arm of the CSIRO, which is Australia's national science agency. Um, she started there in January 2022. Um, but before that, she had an extensive career in academia. She's, um, she still has academic positions. She's an emeritus professor at the University of Technology, Sydney, and a conjoint professor at UNSW, Sydney. And she's also um, Iranian. She is also Iranian. So she was born in Iran um, and educated there as well as in the UK um, and in um, higher education in Australia. 
Um, she has been interested in science and mathematics since she was a child. Um, she said that her two um, ambitions were, um, well, she had one surprising ambition and a professional ambition to be an engineer, which she fulfilled. Great, let's now hear from Dita Zaugi. Welcome to the THE podcast, Dita. It is a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I thought we might start with just getting a bit of background from your, your life. So can you tell us a bit about the academic path that led you to Data61? Uh, yeah, well, it depends if you want the short version or the long version. I, I try and give you a sort of a medium-sized version. My, my life story, as you said, starts from my birthplace, Iran. And uh, I uh, went to the UK for higher education and uh, completed a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science in University of Essex in Colchester. And I worked in industry both in the UK and also in Australia. So I worked for a couple of years in the UK and in London and then migrated with my family to Australia and uh, uh, continued to work in IT industry before getting married and having the first child. And there was no maternity leave back then. So I quit my full-time job in industry and uh, after one year, I started teaching part-time at a university uh, across the road from where I lived. Um, and then uh, while I was um, uh, just doing a bit of a part-time teaching, I was offered a scholarship uh, by one of the professors there to do a master's by research. And uh, this led me to my first full-time academic position as a lecturer in a newly formed uh, university in Sydney, it was called Western Sydney University, and uh, I was then offered a scholarship to do a PhD. Uh, so basically I took leave from my um, full-time academic job to complete a PhD, which then led me to get a, a senior lecturer position at University of Technology Sydney in, in 2000. And um, I guess uh, after that I was just uh, uh, worked my way um, up the hierarchy in academia and uh, was promoted to full professor uh, seven years after completing my PhD. And uh, during that time, I led many leadership positions, as you mentioned in the intro uh, at UTS. And I really, really loved my job. Um, in uh, 2021, after COVID hit uh, Australian universities very hard, I uh, guess I, I experienced an uh, epiphany and uh, this was an epiphany about my career and was thinking about leaving academia for good. And I guess uh, I was really lucky that when I was thinking about this, I was contemplating, I was offered a senior research leadership position at CSIRO's uh, Data61, which, uh, as you said, is a digital arm of the Australian National Science Agency. And uh, at that point in time, I guess, uh, because I was supported by scholarships from CSIRO for both my master and PhD, naturally I accepted the offer because it was going to give me uh, the opportunity to pay back um, while at the same time working with some of the brightest researchers in the world to tackle some of the hardest challenges and making an impact. So here I am at uh, Data61. Well, it certainly puts you right in the centre of Australian research. You've had quite an extraordinary career. Being that this is a focus um, on women and higher education for this podcast, do you think that 
your gender has had any effect on your journey for either good or not so good? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I guess when I look back at my childhood, um, I, uh, I was really good at two things. Um, one was I was really good at schoolwork, especially mathematics. And mm -hmm. second, I was excellent at football. And uh, <laughs> I, I recall that I had two ambitions uh, in life as a child uh, and growing up as a teenager, I guess. Uh, maybe one of them was a dream and the other one was an ambition. Uh, the dream mm -hmm. was to be a professional football player. That was obviously impossible to achieve for women, especially in my birthplace, Iran, in the 70s. And mm. <laughs> the second was a very clear career ambition to become an engineer. And uh, I was really determined and really never thought being a woman was going to be a disadvantage. Uh, I, was, mm -hmm. I was born to parents who believed in gender equality and were very ambitious for their four daughters to be highly educated and uh, self-sufficient in their life and career. Mm -hmm. um, I guess I was a bit of a tomboy as a child. And in fact, <laughs> I, <laughs> I always believed that anything a boy can do, I can do better. And... Uh, the, 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 the course that I enrolled in University of Essex was, in fact, electrical engineering uh, to, to reach my dream, I guess. And I was astonished to see um, in my first year that there were about 10 girls and 200 plus boys in the lecture room. So mm -hmm. I knew what I was up against then. So um, after completing my first year, I decided to change my course from uh, electrical engineering to computer science, which was relatively new in those days and uh, uh, very exciting as well. So, um, mm. and it's still only about 10% female students in the classroom. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, by the way, I, I also managed to continue my passion for football in England and uh, played in my university's women's soccer team for three years and we won the national university championship. So that, that was a bonus, I guess, going to England. Um, and uh, again, I, I guess I look back at my career and I feel really happy that I was able to achieve my career goal and study uh, what I really liked and was good at. And I never really imagined myself being an academic when I was doing my bachelor degree. And later, later working in, in IT industry. Um, so, so when I started my research, uh, during my master's degree, I realized my passion for research, uh, which mm -hmm. then led me to PhD, and that made me fit well into an academic career. So mm -hmm. I guess uh, to answer your question, I think it's been really good for me. <laughs> well, that's really great to hear. And as you were speaking, I was thinking about how much the world has changed. I possibly, like you, was thrilled to watch the Women's World Cup and to see oh, yes. that audience for women's sport, which um, back in the 70s and 80s I never could have imagined. Um, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so the world is changing. How did you get into artificial intelligence? Yeah, that's actually a very, very interesting uh, question for me to answer. I, um, Artificial intelligence, my master's thesis was actually in artificial intelligence. So I developed an uh, expert system for uh, molecular biologists for doing uh, DNA mapping. And uh, mm -hmm. for my PhD thesis, I applied theories of artificial intelligence in software engineering. And in fact, I would say that my passion for artificial intelligence started at Essex in Colchester. Um, 
I had a subject on artificial intelligence at uh, a course uh, in third year, which was uh, taught by one of the greats of AI, Professor Mike Brady. And uh, mm-hmm. he really distilled that passion in me. And I had uh, my uh, honors thesis was written on uh, natural language processing that I received first class for. So uh, mm-hmm. it, it was, uh, you know, it really started from that point. And then, I, as I said, my master's, my, P, my PhD. But uh, because my PhD was really a uh, work in software engineering, I moved into software engineering and I kept uh, in touch with AI because AI has had its summers and winters and uh, glory days and uh, not so glorious days. And, mm-hmm. um, but I, as I said, I kept abreast with what was going on. And uh, when I was uh, um, offered uh, the position at CSRO's uh, Data61, I was asked to build and lead a team to address diversity and inclusion in artificial intelligence. Uh, so I decided to take on this challenge and dive uh, deep into this mysterious area of research because it made me really curious. And um, I've always believed that intellectual curiosity is the first and foremost important attribute that a good researcher should have. And so uh, I guess, uh, the, you know, that the... the uh, combination of uh, AI and diversity and inclusion uh, was uh, was quite a mystery to me last year when I began this position. That's really interesting. Can you explain a little bit about how bias gets into AI? Yeah, so um, gender bias can have a very significant impact on how AI technology behaves and its uh, uses. Uh, so this bias can be built into AI systems in various ways. This includes uh, biased data sets, uh, biased algorithms, uh, biased human decisions uh, during the development process, uh, and uh, also uh, non-diverse and non-inclusive uh, development team. Um, one of the most uh, significant effects of gender bias in AI is, uh, is the perpetuation of uh, harmful stereotypes and discrimination mm-hmm. against uh, women and other marginalized groups. Uh, for example, uh, we have facial recognition systems that have been found to be less accurate in identifying women and people mm-hmm. uh, whose uh, skin color is not white, uh, leading to false positive and wrongful arrests uh, in the law enforcement agencies. Uh, this is because the data sets that are used to train the algorithms are predominantly composed of uh, white men, resulting in uh, the system being less accurate when it encounters individuals outside of that uh, specific demographic. So mm-hmm. um, I guess another example of gender bias in AI is the use of uh, natural language processing algorithms. Uh, these uh, perpetuate gender stereotypes in their outputs. Uh, for example, a chatbot uh, designed to, to assist customers might use language that reinforces gender stereotypes by using more mm-hmm. uh, aggressive or assertive language when responding to male customers and softer or more submissive language when responding to female customers. There are lots and lots of uh, uh, instances of this. Um, so gender bias can also influence the use of AI technology in various domains. Uh, for example, uh, in hiring and recruitment, uh, lending um, and criminal justice. Uh, so, uh, for example, AI-based hiring systems have been found to favor male candidates, um, even when controlling for uh, qualifications or by perpetuating gender stereotypes in their selection criteria. 
So uh, mm. uh, overall, gender bias in AI can have significant consequences and can lead to uh, this harmful stereotyping and discrimination against marginalized uh, groups. Um, and mm. it, it, it's uh, really essential that we have address them and mitigate this bias by um, ensuring that AI systems are uh, developed and tested with diverse data sets and transparent decision-making processes and uh, and a focus on promoting fairness and equality. That's really interesting. These things are invisible forces, I think, that we, we don't, um, unless we're aware of, we don't see. Um, you mentioned diverse teams. Do you think that, do you think that the gender um, ratios that you mentioned earlier on that you encountered in your studies, do you think these are changing and that as a result, perhaps we may see a shift in these um, inbuilt biases? Um, not, not really increasing yes, fast enough. So mm. uh, in terms of AI, uh, the most recent uh, statistics show that only 20% at best uh, of uh, uh, individuals who work in the AI space are female. Uh, and uh, even in, in academia, for example, is, is worse even, that are less than 20% uh, AI uh, academics, professors um, are female. And uh, um, so I think uh, there is, a, I think, a lot of uh, initiatives around that's uh, trying to increase uh, the numbers and also the participation, but I think we're still a long way to achieve uh, gender equality in AI. And what do you do? You have any ideas or theories uh, about why that might be? Um, do you think there are there ways that that STEM perhaps could be promoted to women, or um, bottlenecks or barriers in the system that are perpetuating this this um, this situation? Well, I, I think that uh, there is uh, no single theory or a single answer to the question that you're posing uh, in mm. that uh, you talk about bottlenecks and barriers. There are many and uh, at different uh, levels and uh, different contexts. Um, and I, I think that uh, if you think about science and engineering works, works for example, recent uh, statistics from... Uh, National Science Foundation in the United States shows only 28% of the science and engineering workforce in the United States uh, is women. Uh, it makes up of, of women and their representation decreases as one moves up the leadership ladder. So there is a mm. le leaky pipeline. Uh, the numbers are not that different in the UK, Europe or Australia either. And there are several reasons for this underrepresentation and lack of advancement. For example, uh, there is a persistent stereotype that STEM fields are masculine, uh, which can mm -hmm. create a hostile environment for women um, because women are also often face subtle biases and uh, micro um, aggressions that can lead to them being excluded from leadership positions uh, or overlooked for promotion. And there are also, I guess, structural barriers such as lack of access to mentorship, networking and uh, professional development opportunities that are critical for career development. Um, and uh, I guess women are also uh, more likely to be primary caregivers, which can make mm -hmm. uh, it quite challenging to balance work and family 
responsibilities. Um, so in, in, in response to all these challenges, um, uh, positions that champion uh, women in STEM are, in my opinion, uh, absolutely essential to promote gender equality and inclusion in these uh, fields. And um, uh, these kind of positions, uh, you know, uh, women in STEM champions that provide mentorship and networking opportunities and support for career advancement. And mm-hmm. um, uh, also the, they can address unconscious biases and other barriers that prevent women from uh, achieving leadership roles. So um, progress has been made, of course, as I said, is in increasing in women's representation, but there is still a long way to go to achieve gender equality and inclusion. You, um, you mentioned the role of caregiver, which often falls to women, um, which leads me to um, my next question, which is that you were, you're also a, a mum and you raised two children while doing your master's and doctorate. Do you think that that had an impact, and also you're um, one of four daughters, do you think that that had an impact on the way that you conduct or think about your research? Uh, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I would I would confidently say that among all the things that I have done in my life, motherhood has been the most rewarding and the most challenging, both at the same time. Mm. Um, as I was raising my kids during uh, uh, studying for my master's and my PhD years, um, I was never in any doubt whatsoever who held the top priority in my everyday routine. So motherhood had a great deal of influence on the way I distributed my time and shaped my daily routine. And there was never a compromise when it was something to do with my kids. So I was also very determined to achieve my academic goals one way or another. And, and uh, I was always ready to throw it all away uh, if it got in the way of doing the things that I wanted to do for my kids. So uh, I guess the work-life balance did manifest itself on many occasions for me personally. Uh, for example, traveling to conferences to present my work or you know, just traveling for work was always very limited while my, while my kids were very young. And, uh, but you know, I guess I was really lucky to have a very supportive and kind husband uh, who, was, who was there to have my back. But uh, in terms of... Um, uh, changing my research direction. Um, I don't think it's really had, uh, you know, I, I guess I had choices uh, to make at the beginning of my PhD journey. And uh, there were uh, top research topics that required me to spend more time uh, digging deep into that topic before I can uh, lead into a research direction. Um, and I shied away from those uh, research topics because it just meant that my PhD would uh, get longer, will, will take longer to do. So I sort of chose the one that I felt would take me less time to do because I already had background knowledge about them. Uh, so in, in other words, you know, some priorities uh, of motherhood got in the way of choice of the topic uh, of research mm. in some way. Speaking of mentoring and raising uh, children, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? There's, there's been lots, but uh, I would say that um, one of the good pieces of advice that I received in my academic career 
from um, from a professor. Uh, actually, it was a British professor. Actually, uh, was about uh, persistence, uh, which was mm-hmm. well aligned with my upbringing and uh, my mother's uh, motto that never quit what you start. You have to finish what you start. And so the advice I was given by this wise professor in my early years of PhD was persistence pays. And this mm-hmm. this advice was given to me in relation to a paper that was rejected from uh, a conference or a journal and I was revising it to resubmit it and uh, he said that persistent pace if you persist it will you will get it published eventually and um, <laughs> I have given the same advice to many whom I have mentored and of course to my own children uh, I always tell them that persistence finally pays one way or another and this is nothing to do just with career advice, for example, I remember recently um, my daughter wanted to uh, return something that she had bought from some shop and that, that she didn't want. And uh, I, I told her that you just have to go in there and say that I want to return this and uh, just persist quietly and uh, politely, but don't leave the shop. And when they see you standing in the shop and persisting, they have to do it. And and, yes. and she did that, and she did return <laughs> the item, which was an expensive item, and she thought that they're not never going to give it, take it back. And uh, so, yeah, persistent pays. That's a good advice. It's a very good life lesson, I think. Um, if you could facilitate one change in technology, um, what would it be if you had a magic wand and you could change mm. something? Yeah, you definitely need the magic wand for this one. <laughs> so, so um, maybe I should just uh, tell you a bit of background about uh, a very big core of my research work has always been about uh, how to uh, understand and elicit uh, user needs for technology. And mm-hmm. uh, I, if I had a magic wand, I would make uh, sure that technology does what it was meant to do. Uh, mm-hmm. That is to serve, to support, and help its users with minimal disruption and relative ease. That, that would... does seem like it needs a very large magic wand. Yes, indeed. <laughs> What's the core of your role at the moment? What does, most, what does most of your time go to? At this point, I'm actually leading a team at uh, Cyrus Data 61 to uh, investigate and to bring into life diversity and inclusion in artificial intelligence. And Mm -hmm. uh, so other than uh, the science team that I lead, uh, uh, I also chair a a think tank uh, in the National AI Center on diversity and inclusion in artificial intelligence, and uh, which uh, basically tries to uh, make the same thing happen nationally in Australia and make impact and uh, showcase uh, some of the ways in which one can uh, uh, pay very strong attention to diversity and inclusion in the uh, design, development, deployment and use of AI, as well as uh, the governance of AI uh, to mm-hmm. bring about the uh, practices and principles of diversity and inclusion across the board in the AI ecosystem. And do you have a um, 
Do you have a, ba a balanced team? Do you work with lots of other women at um, at Data Sixty One, or are you still a little bit in the minority? <laughs> no, no, actually, uh, so uh, Data Sixty One uh, took on board a growth campaign. Uh, uh, towards the end of 2021 to increase uh, the number of uh, uh, women in uh, Data61. And mm -hmm. I, I was actually the first hire of that growth campaign. They were uh, uh, reaching out to uh, recruit around 60 scientists and uh, they wanted to make sure that at least uh, half of those 60 will be women. Uh, and this mm -hmm. is a really ambitious, uh, ambitious uh, project because, as you know, uh, in uh, tech and in AI, especially, as I said earlier, uh, number of uh, women applicants to begin with are very <laughs> limited. And uh, mm -hmm. so this uh, growth campaign was probably, I would say, uh, one of the most successful growth campaigns uh, in Australia, maybe in the world, because uh, at the end of that uh, one-year campaign, they ended up having uh, slightly more than 50% um, gender uh, balance in the recruitment. And so, no, I, am, uh, I have a, quite a number of uh, uh, female uh, colleagues. My team is also, uh, strangely enough, all female, <laughs> but, mm -hmm. but from different uh, cultures and different walks of life. And... Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I am really proud to work for Data61 and for CSIRO mm. because uh, uh, diversity and inclusion is uh, extremely important and paid huge attention to. Mm -hmm. Well, that's great to hear. Um, in terms of um, influence on yourself, who would you say has been the most influential woman or women in your life? Um. Well, I guess if you asked me this question when I was a teenager, I would probably give you a totally different answer, maybe a, my favorite pop star or something, or my, my, <laughs> my best friend in high school. But, but now when I look back and examine my life journey, I would say that my mother influenced my life enormously. She was mm -hmm. always working very hard, always striving for excellence, never giving up on her goals, never giving up on her children and mm -hmm. uh, very deliberate and she she raised me and all my uh, siblings in the same way um also i guess uh, another uh, female uh, influence in my life uh, uh, is my youngest sister uh, who's actually a physicist and uh, mm -hmm. she's been my rock all through my life and helped me in so many ways uh, that i cannot count uh, such as being second mother to my children when i needed to um, uh, put my head down and uh, write my thesis. Um, mm -hmm. But in terms of my academic career, I would say that my mentor, uh, Professor Jenny Edwards, uh, who hired me as a senior lecturer at University of Technology Sydney in 2000 uh, and stayed connected and guided me in so many aspects of my work, uh, had a great deal of influence in helping me shape my academic journey and she's retired now but uh, she remains as a close uh, friend and confidant yes it's so important isn't it to have um to have a supportive network um around us to yeah. um like you say to persist is important but you need to be able to you need support in order to to continue on any kind of journey i think 
that definitely. Mm. So you um you have had a um, a very interesting and distinguished career. What are you most proud of in your own journey? So this this one is I guess hard to uh, pick one because mm. um, I uh, I can maybe just give you a summary because you know as you said I've uh, uh, been around for a long time and uh, <laughs> that was not what I meant it's meant to imply <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess uh, teaching and transferring knowledge to thousands of students supervising many PhD and master research students you know, conducting impactful research in my fields of computing and uh, collaborating with uh, many academics and industry across the world to mm-hmm. uh, to make positive impacts, uh, you know, receiving highly competitive research grants, taking on many challenging leadership roles to contribute to the strategic directions uh, of academia. I guess uh, from an academic perspective, publishing 200 plus research papers in prestigious mm-hmm. conferences and journals. And I, I guess one thing that I'm really proud of is co-authoring with uh, uh, over 100 scholars from uh, more than 30 countries. And, uh, um, I've, you know, I've always been an advocate for gender equality, especially in STEM. And uh, I, uh, I actively led and supported many initiatives for women. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm really proud of how, how far we have come in the last two decades in attracting mm-hmm. more female students in STEM. Um, but I guess if, if I was to, from this extensive work experience, with so many highlights, uh, I can maybe more personally, I'm proud of three uh, things at personal level that reflect the heights of my passion for, mm-hmm. for my field. Uh, I guess the first one is uh, being promoted to full professor only seven years after PhD in a male dominated field. And yes. and um, and you mentioned at the beginning about my uh, um, IEEE Computer Society's Distinguished Education Award in 2021, uh, 22. Uh, I was also uh, really came quite as a surprise and a shock <laughs> the year after I left academia, which was really interesting. And I also received a lifetime service award from IEEE uh, for my contribution to the research community in 2019. So. These, yes. these these three really stand out for me on a personal level. Yeah, it, it's a very very impressive uh, CV. Um, and can I just ask one thing, just to finish? Um, you mentioned international collaboration. Um, I would be remiss, I think, not to ask you about the situation in in Iran. Um, I was hoping you, you would. <laughs> yes. Do you have um, Do you have any thoughts or um, insight into into what's going on in that country, in your home country? Um, yes. Yes. So, as I said, um, um, I finished my school in Iran before going to England for higher education. Mm-hmm. This was just before the Islamic invasion of Iran. And um, mm-hmm. Iran was a very progressive country back then, and women were enjoying. Uh, the, the freedom they deserved. Um, my, my response to the current uh, women-led revolution in Iran has been a mixture mm. of astonishment at the bravery of these women in Iran, while at the mm. same time feeling um, sorrow and anguish for the precious lives lost, for fighting for liberty and freedom, 
and the basic human rights. As, 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 I, as I said before, um, I think, I don't know whether I mentioned this or not, but, uh, you know, I, I, I am a Baha'i. I, I believe in the Baha'i faith, and uh, Baha'is are the largest religious minority in Iran uh, who have mm -hmm. been severely and brutally persecuted by the Islamic regime in the last 44 years. So uh, not only I feel for my brethren in, in Iran and my, my sisters and brothers, but also I, uh, I feel that uh, anguish for uh, people of my faith. So, uh, however, I am optimistic that uh, this revolution that is uh, led by women, uh, supported by men, will eventually see the demise of the Islamic regime in Iran. And uh, hopefully a uh, um, secular and, and a um, uh, democratic government will take uh, its rightful place where people of Iran finally can experience a normal life and, and exercise uh, their basic human rights. Well, thank you very much for sharing, for sharing that and for sharing your personal experiences um, through your life. Um, it has been such a pleasure speaking to you um, and so interesting. Um, and thank you very much for joining us on the THE podcast. Thank you, Eliza, for asking me to talk with you. And uh, it was a pleasure to uh, uh, share with you my uh, journey and uh, my experiences. I found that such uh, an enriching conversation, just to get a sense of how a life can be shaped by not only where you're born um, and where you're educated, but also your family environment, your um, your natural predispositions to to the things that draw us to our, our passions and how you can tie all those things together. Yeah, Dida mm. gave a really positive account actually of being a woman in academia and in a field where women are really underrepresented. So it, I came away from that feeling really sort of a real can-do attitude which um, was a very nice nice thing to take away from it. I loved how she said um, the top advice she's ever received is persistence um, and it reminded me of a phrase that's become quite synonymous with the feminist movement especially in the United States um, that's nevertheless she persisted um, and it, it's become a bit of a rallying cry but it actually originated from the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell saying that about Senator Elizabeth Warren um, back in 2017, I think. And I also like the story that she told about her daughter after that. And it, it was like, you know, persisting isn't giving a speech with Coretta Scott King's letter on the Senate floor in the United States. And it doesn't have to be marching in the streets. It can be quiet, respectful persistence, but it's it's standing your ground and it's having a strong sense of knowing what's right and, and not giving up on it. I also liked on the subject of her daughter that she was actually really honest about the impact that it had had on her life, kind of having children. Um, but she was very honest about the fact that a part of what had really helped was actually having an incredibly supportive husband. And also later she referenced that her youngest sister had mm. been like a second mum. And I just thought that was... Yes, a refreshingly honest presentation of, of how she, in part, how she had managed it, like drawing in support from, you know, those close to her. 
Mm. Which probably also, makes those struggling feel a bit better. <laughs> and also how um, motherhood influenced her research topics, her PhD research topics. She said that she chose the one that she thought that she knew enough about, that she knew more about, and that she ta- she thought would take less time to do. Which I think a lot of researchers would probably <laughs> choose the path of least resistance like that. I don't know, but she did say motherhood in her motherhood responsibilities did influence that. Yeah, it just goes to show it takes a village to raise a PhD. So, and those again, those networking um, connections, whether they're family or professional, are are really important. I was really interested to hear about um, how the CSIRO has gone about their hiring and how her team is all women, um, which sounds like a fantastic um, environment to work in, but also quite unusual, I imagine, within STEM, given the statistics that she was talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, gender-specific hiring like that is quite controversial, but it looks like it's it's paid off in this case. Yeah, well, absolutely. And the knock-on is, is for all of us because when she talks about the effect of gender bias on AI, which, as we know from uh, all the resources that we've been reading and publishing um, on AI writers and things like that, is only going to become a bigger influence in our lives, um, the idea that these forces that um, affect us right down to dealing dealing with chatbots who we deal with every time we log on to a website, if we're going to have different um, language um, associated with that because the data sets that are used to inform them are male bias, um, you know, right up to um, even things like, I've lost my words, crime <laughs> reinforcement. Yeah, or um, even like wearing a headscarf in society. I mean, I think exactly. that biases really infiltrates everything, governments, cultures, and I'm, I'm so glad that you asked her about Iran, and I thought her comments on that were so incredibly powerful. But if we're talking about AI systems um, that, we will, that will be influencing every single thing of, of our daily lives, having that bias uh, will really impact just the, the way that women are perceived in society and in their role in society. And for better or worse, um, will certainly impact the freedom movements globally as we've seen in the, in the protests that are happening in Iran right now. Well, I think that's all we've got time for today. Miranda, Eliza, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a, a much less lonely journey on this podcast for me. Thank you. Thank you for the invite. It's been a great conversation. And thank you to Didar and Henrika for giving us their time for this podcast. Uh, It's been wonderful to hear about their experiences as women of color within higher education and and share those perspectives with the world. So thank you very much. Any ideas or comments or questions about the podcast, as always, you can get in touch with me, sarah.custer at timeshighereducation.com. We'll see you next time. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast.